Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And uh, Skyping in from a distance is our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. Mike, you're not still at Joe Biden's house from his Christmas party, but uh, that is in your recent past, so you have that glow about you. Yeah, quick trip to D.C. last night and uh, got to meet the vice president and Dr. Jill Biden. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. One thing I didn't realize about political parties versus Hollywood parties is basically you spend two-thirds of the time at a political party standing in line waiting to get your picture taken with the what they call the principals. Right. Ah, so they're more they're kind of more open about the shameless selfie getting than they are at Hollywood parties where you're kind of supposed to be cool about it. Yeah, I think basically this was just like payback for donors, effectively. Ah. So, you know, you give whatever you give and you get a Christmas picture. Now, do they mean principles in like the principal players sense or like principal of a school sense? <laughs> I guess it could, <laughs> could be both, really. I guess it depends on, you know, what kind of politician it is. In right. this case, I felt more like principal players. You know, yeah. Joe is an affable fellow. Great teeth. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's evident yeah. even if you're not in the room with Real them. Real movie star teeth. So it's a big week for you and Joe Biden, but I'm guessing a bigger week for, say, Mel Gibson or Octavia Spencer or, you know, a yeah. lot a lot going on this week awards-wise. We have a lot to sort through. There was the Critics' Choice Awards on Sunday night. There were the Golden Globe nominations on Monday morning and then the SAG Award nominations on Wednesday just hours ago as we record this. And uh, they've done some shaking up of what I think we all expected from award season and then also confirmed a few things. It's a lot, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Mike, you know, you've been following along with all of this. What do you feel like is the biggest oh, well, now we know this for sure, lesson of all of this. Oh, man. I think silence is erased from the picture, quite possibly. It seems like Loving doesn't have traction. It seems like a number of films that we thought were in the mix are not in the mix. Obviously, you know, Moonlight, La La Land, and Manchester by the Sea remain very much in the picture. Yeah, those have been the perceived top three, and I don't think any of that has changed, which is some amount of stability. Yeah, I'm personally thrilled that Captain Fantastic seems to be in the picture now, because after Vigo got the nomination at the Golden Globes, they got both the Ensemble Award, which he told me when I talked to him on Monday, he was really gunning for that Ensemble Award, because there's all these young actors who play his kids, and that was the big fun part for him. They're all friends now. They stay in touch. They were all texting him the morning of the Golden Globe nomination. So it's great for him. He's psyched that they can all share in this thing. And I personally like the idea of just remembering like the Oscar party when Slumdog Millionaire won and the whole crowd coming in. I love the idea of that Captain Fantastic, crazy, you know, anarchist in the woods crowd coming in and partying <laughs> it up at the Oscar party. Well, that requires them to uh, beat out SAG Award Ensemble nominees, Fences, Hidden Figures, Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight, which might be a, a hard job. Oh, and I'm just saying, I think that they might be in the Oscar picture in a way that I didn't. I, I certainly don't expect them to win Best Picture or anything, but like if they're if they get enough nominations to justify sending a bunch of them, that would be a, a fun thing for that night. And I think something that helps that movie is that, you know, it was at Sundance almost a year ago, then it was at Cannes. So it's been around a long time, and a lot of people have had a chance to see it, whereas some of these late-breaking movies, you know, that if you don't get to the screener in time or can't make it to the screening at the theater, you know, a lot of people won't see them. And I kind of think that might be happening with something like Silence, where a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to see it yet. Yeah. You know, that said, look at Hidden Figures, which isn't out yet, and only really some voting groups and some critics have seen it. And that made a really strong showing at the SAGs and got a Golden Globe nomination. So who knows? Yeah. Hidden Figures and Hacksaw Ridge feel like, you know, they belong in our group now of favorites, which is, I think, surprising. You know, no, no one's surprised about the first three that we mentioned earlier. But 
especially Hacksaw Ridge to me, and the fact that, as you pointed out in the piece you wrote, Richard, that no one really expected Andrew Garfield to be a likely nominee for that versus the Scorsese movie, you right. know, the Mel Gibson movie over yeah. the Scorsese movie. But that's where we're at now. I mean, I think he's in a great position. Well, I think we spent a lot of time looking at Sully as kind of the populist box office pick for this year. It was an Eastwood movie. It's got Tom Hanks. It, it's maybe one of the highest grossing movies in the Oscar conversation right now. But Hacksaw Ridge is really kind of creeping up there. It's made something around $83 million worldwide already. And compared yeah. to, you know, same man touched by the Sierra Moonlight, that's a massive hit. And it, yeah, it really does seem to position itself as kind of the like, here's what the real America wants to see, which is, uh, you know, a powerful thing in an Oscar race. Yeah, I mean, Hacksaw Ridge might reflect a little bit more of the current American mood than Sully does. I mean, Sully is a nice story about heroism, you know, sort of an everyday competent heroism. But, you know, it's just like, you know, this plane lands on the river in the middle of the afternoon and, you know, okay. But Hacksaw Ridge is like absolute horror and annihilation surrounding everything but this one good man, you know. So maybe that's that sort of heightened uh, hero stuff is really where we're at. Well, then you've also got Hidden Figures, which is about, you know, three women who are working within an extremely male, white uh, structure and managing to succeed, which I guess is the optimistic version of that. uh, That's the America we maybe want to be in. Hacksaw Ridge is the America we are. Well, or or actually, I mean, what, what I think is interesting, first of all, Hacksaw Ridge is such a wildly uneven film, but it's worth it to kind of slog through the kind of not very effective full metal jacket, basic training portion at the beginning to get to these incredibly intense battle scenes. But I think in a way, just to take a step back and talk about where America is at right now, when you look at, not to get too heavy, but when you look at what's happened in Syria and you look at the results of Obama's kind of timidity I think a lot of people are thinking, you know what, we don't get to just sit home and not engage in stuff. And that's what that film is saying. It's basically, even if you don't believe in picking up a gun, there's still a sacrifice to be made on behalf of the nation and on behalf of the world. And it is a compelling message. I mean, it's a crazy movie, but that seems to be in the air a little bit right now. Well, do we think that the Mel Gibson comeback that I feel like would have felt impossible two years ago is now happening? He got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Director. He got a Critics' Choice Award nomination for Best Director. I mean, it's uh, he is really in the mix to the point that uh, I'm definitely surprised. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much more confirmation we need or that can, he's back. Can get that he's back. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, yeah. I, I, th- I guess maybe the last one would be Hacksaw Ridge has done well at the box office it's kind of slowly over the weeks, but it hasn't been a huge hit. It's not like Braveheart size, you know. Sure. So maybe there's some of that that, you know, maybe the general public needs to still catch up to him or forgive him or whatever. But it certainly seems like at least the HFPA, which, again, is a small voting body, has sort of, you know, welcomed and the SAG And the SAGs giving SAGs. Andrew Garfield that nomination. Yeah. yeah, Richard, as a critic, do you have insight into what directorially people are responding to here? Is the technique so incredible with those violent war scenes that no one's seen anything like this before? Or is it more kind of the pictures bigger than the sum of its parts? If the whole movie was the tone of that first half that you were saying was not too great, I think you know, there would be nothing there for that movie to be nominated for, really. But yeah, I think that the war half is so, you know, technically detailed and expansive and made on not a huge budget. You know, I think it was maybe half the budget of Braveheart or something. You know, so all those things get noticed. And I think that there is such a power to it, even though it is horrifying to watch. But all that kind of scary stuff is then at the end sort of leavened or softened by, you know, this Andrew Garfield's character just being this really amazing hero. So the movie can end on a sort of inspirational note, even though almost everything that's come before is incredibly annihilating. Hmm. Yeah. And the true story thing really helps it kind of 
uh, emotionally land when yeah. you start to at the very end he has scenes I don't think it's giving anything away at the very end you see some of the people that are portrayed in the film talking about their experiences and it's like wow man these guys live through this you know they they helped kind of save the world as it were I mean it's kind of feeling you think of at the end of Saving Private Ryan which is a devastating yeah. movie to watch and then you kind of feel the the weight of history as you finish it and you know that that is a best picture losing film but it got very close so you know Patriot's Day the the Peter Berg movie about the marathon bombing does a similar thing at the end you know, the movie's over and then it, it's all interviews with real life people who are there, which I don't know, maybe that's a new thing we're seeing pioneered by Steven Spielberg at the end of Band of Brothers. But. Yeah, I was kind of waiting for Patriot's Day to start showing up in some of these nominations like the Globes or something and like yeah. be the late year surprise. But, and you know, it could still open and make billions of dollars, but it, right. it doesn't look like it's going to factor in awards wise, which not know, looking like it right now. One less thing. I mean, another thing that also looks like it's not factoring in, which I'm kind of bummed out by, is 20th Century Women. Like, Mike, you're talking about the movies that seem like they're really off the table. It showed up at the Globes in the comedy categories, but Annette Benning is definitely going to lose that globe to Emma Stone. And then it got blanked by the SAGs. I think Greta Gerwig's supporting actress spot that a lot of us thought she had has been going to Octavia Spencer, who's a previous winner in the category. I mean, do you see any chance for it to come back up? I think that probably Greta Gerwig it's not going to be her year, you know, with that kind of momentum, it feels like Octavia Spencer will be able to probably lock down that spot. I don't know. I'm assuming that Annette Benning will end up with a nomination because it's, it is such a great performance, but maybe that film is just a little too shaggy and arty and, you know, it's exquisitely tasteful, especially if you're like me, like a 41 year old who grew up with nineties aesthetics. I mean, that film is just hits every possible aesthetic mark. But, you know, it may not be really moving people. I found it pretty moving, but, you know, it's a kind of a small contained story about loopy post-hippies in California. Well, and it doesn't have what you're always talking about is like that kind of that big moment of crying. Like Annette Bening is really wonderful in the movie, but she's not giving like a big important performance that you would kind of think of that I don't think is what makes a great performance, but it's definitely what gets attention in races like this. Well, it's funny. I mean, and I wonder if there's... Uh, I don't want to like go right to the gender double standard thing, but it reminds me a little bit of the Casey Affleck performance in Manchester. She's so controlled. She's not dealing with quite that level of tragedy and suppressed emotion, but basically the whole point of her character is that she is contained. She is controlled. She's been through a lot and that's her survival mechanism and that people around her that may frustrate them or not, but you know, she's got to do her kind of thing. But yeah, that's not the same as sort of like blubbering, crying, you know, giving the audience this absolutely cathartic moment. And Oscar voters love a cathartic moment. Yeah. It tells you a lot about the difference between the lead and supporting categories that, you know, Octavia Spencer is in Hidden Figures, which is this very charming movie. She's obviously very charming, but she doesn't have that moment either. Like, she's not really offering that. It's a very, like, great, solid supporting performance of the kind that I think we know Octavia Spencer can do. I think she had a lot more to work with than the help, but... I guess she's beloved enough, and that movie seems to be hitting enough of a chord that she's yeah. what's going to represent it. I honestly thought Janelle Monae might yeah. be the one from that movie That's people had singled out. I was going to say, because Janelle Monae also has Moonlight, you mm -hmm. know, so I thought that she's having a barely big year. Um, and she has this, she does have a big cathartic moment in Hidden Figures, mm -hmm. where she gives this big speech in a courtroom. Not big speech, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't play out that way. You know, Octavia does seem beloved by the industry, so. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, well, I wish the industry would give her more <laughs> give her better work to do. Roles, but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, inspirational usually will win out. If everything else is even, or even not even, and one film is, like, perfectly exquisite but not really hitting you in a gut level, and the other one is and isn't perfectly exquisite, usually the one that, you know, has the inspirational feeling is going to win out. You know, that's what award season seems to value. Although Moonlight is there, 
you know, and it, Manchester it by the of, Sea, and Manchester too. So, but I think those movies are like so goddamn well done. They're they're at like a plus 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 in terms of execution. Yeah, I think that's the argument. Like you're talking about the inspiration for Lion as well, which showed up in the SAG Award nominations on the Golden Globes, and you know, and that movie is inspirational and it's heartwarming and it's really good at the same time. You know, it could have been much worse and still gotten away with making you feel something. So it's going to kind of get in there as the movie that makes you feel good, too, which, you know, yeah. well, don't we all deserve that at the end of this year? I thought Lion was really effective. I didn't really expect that I was going to like it, to tell you the truth. And I liked it a lot and I found it very moving. Yeah. I have a question. Is anyone worried about La La Land not getting ensemble or is that just the fact that it's basically a two-hander? I kind of figure it's basically that it's a two-hander. Yeah. Like you could give it ensemble and include what like John Legend and Rosemary DeWitt and that's it. Like yep. that's, yeah. that, I don't know who I don't know who the above the line talent is, but yeah, I mean the SAG Awards I think are really interesting in that they give the ensemble prize and they reward like a large cast working really well together the help is a previous winner that's a really good example like spotlight is kind of the ideal in that and la la land is a fascinating movie that has two leads and that's basically the whole thing i think the the thing that has people a little bit concerned or scratching their heads is that um it's really rare for a best picture at the oscar winner to not have been nominated for best ensemble at sags i think it hasn't happened in a long time and so this would be kind of a first for that in a while but yeah again i think that it wasn't really qualify for this, but it doesn't mean anything for its Oscar chances. Yeah, I'm looking through even the artist, which I think is probably the closest comparison to La La Land ensemble wise, did get a best ensemble nod, but they did have a lot of famous people in supporting roles. And I guess one question is, is there something about this picture that does reward ensemble work or it sounds like there is, but in this case, it might be the kind of movie where it doesn't matter. I think best picture, you want something big. You want something that isn't small and contained. And I think that was the knock against Spotlight last year. Some people thinking it might not win because it was a small scale movie. And usually a large cast indicates a big, ambitious movie. But La La Land is undeniably ambitious. I think what it's lacking yeah. in cast size, it makes up for basically everywhere else. Right. I mean, the stat that you cited is really interesting, Richard. And like a lot of times this kind of history things bear it out. But I feel like La La Land could be an exception. I mean, we just looked it up and it looks like the only Oscar Best Picture winner that didn't have a SAG Ensemble nomination was Braveheart. 20 years ago. So uh, maybe Hacksaw Ridge is still in the picks for Best Picture uh, yeah. if uh, Mel Gibson history yeah. bears out. Yeah. So the kind of conventional wisdom is that the SAGs are the best predictor of Oscars, both nominees and winners. Is there anything that is locked down now, do we think, from the SAG nominations? I think that supporting actor at SAG could go five for five into the Oscars. Um, well, you don't think Simon Helberg is, uh, in, the, is yeah. in the mix? I think those fluky Globe nominations for Aaron Taylor Johnson and Simon Helberg are, are not going to repeat. At the those Oscars. were, I mean, I know every single year we're like, the Globes are crazy, but those were crazy. Those were nutty. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, if you look at the five that are in for SAGs, mm-hmm. uh, it's what Dev Patel, Hugh Grant, Lucas Hedges, Jeff Bridges, and Mahershal Ali. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, I could see that ticket. Absolutely. And I kind of think supporting actress, too. Yeah, no, Supporting Actress does seem like it's kind of solidifying. And I mean, a lot of those people, you know, Viola Davis, Nicole Kidman, Naomi Harris, and Michelle Williams, I think we've all been having our eye on. And then all of a sudden, Octavia Spencer kind of came in there to change things up a little bit. SAG and Golden Globes matching exactly, I think, tells you something about where it's going. Although, you know, Octavia Spencer being one of those people who kind of jumps in at the last minute could, I think, just as easily jump back out. Though I don't, other than Greta Gerwig, it's hard to see who would kind of... Or Janelle Monáe. Yeah, well, that would be fascinating if, yeah. like, the Moonlight swell. switcheroo. Yeah, or Janelle Monáe gets nominated for Moonlight. Although that having yeah. two people nominated in the supporting category for the same film is more rare. True. 
As often happens in award season, the supporting categories get a little bit more clear. I think that for Best Actress, which is, you know, the sort of crowning event of this year or the crowning category, I think that Emma Stone, Natalie Portman, yeah, we know that. Yeah. I think that there are two spots that four people are fighting over. Amy Adams, Annette Bening, Ruth Nega. And Isabel Hooper. And Meryl Streep. Uh, no, I think Isabel Hooper is going to get this fifth spot oh, that, okay. that Marion Cotillard got two years ago. Got it. That, you know, didn't get a SAG nomination, nor did Charlotte Rampling. The arty European movie slot. That right, exactly. That, that the SAGs kind of overlook and then the Oscars mm-hmm. reward. So there are these four actresses fighting for two slots. Meryl Streep, Annette Bening, Ruth Nega, and Amy Adams. And then presumably Isabel Hooper gets the fifth one. Yeah. I so mean, we'll it's still really exciting to have such a good Best Actress lineup to uh, yeah. to be fighting over. Yeah. And I guess we're going to have another year where Tom Hanks doesn't get an Oscar nomination for playing a hero. I don't know. I don't know what's going well, on. Well, what do we think about Best Actor? Because it feels to me four of these are locks. And and the fifth one, I'd love to see Vigo in there. So you think Andrew Garfield for Hacksaw Ridge is definitely happening? I don't know. I just said that and now I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of intimated that in the SAG write-up I did this morning. I kind of think that the momentum is behind him. That movie has shown up on so many lists. You know, it just feels like that's going to yeah. happen. And plus, he's in that spot now where he kind of can get credit for two movies with one nomination. Right. And the movie has momentum as well as him having momentum. I think that's what makes me question Vigo more is, you know, it's basically him and now the ensemble, but nowhere else is that film showing up. And frankly, I'm just still like ecstatic that it's showing up at all. He did get a uh, Golden Globe nomination, but, you know, there, the way they divided up between drama and comedy, he didn't have uh, Ryan Gosling in the category with him. Right. Yeah. So he got like a one out of 10 nomination at the Globes. Um, I mean, I think if you're working with Joel Edgerton or, I mean, I guess... Colin Farrell and the Lobster, like, you know, figuring out who else is competing for that fifth slot is all of a sudden really hard. I mean, I guess Tom Hanks really still has a shot because other than that four, that category is really up in the air. I wouldn't count Tom Hanks out until everything's counted. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I could easily see the Oscars picking off one or the other of those, Andrew or Vigo. I think Casey Ryan and Denzel are definites for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm feeling more bullish on Vigo and Garfield. I don't know. I think that's the five. I yeah. love uh, Andrew Garfield finally getting an Oscar nomination. He got uh, yeah. snubbed for The Social Network. and it... He did, despite getting what, a BAFTA nomination at Golden Globe, and he didn't get the Oscar nomination that year. Well, guys, we have uh, more than a month until the Oscar nominations are announced, and uh, zero event. We'll have the Golden Globes between now and then in the SAG Awards, but uh, we have a long wait before we find out the answers to any of these questions. <laughs> we do. So, well, Things you know, could change. Well, everyone in Hollywood will go and take their two weeks for Christmas and watch all these screeners. And then who knows? By then, uh, by the time the Golden Globes come around, basically right after New Year's, this will all be different. I'm predicting a late surge for collateral beauty in all mm, categories. Yes, it's finally starting to screen. It's, uh, yep. it's going to be the hit Saw of the it last night. Oh, man. So I might kind of step away for a moment, but I've got Richard here to quiz him about Rogue One, which oh, yeah. I haven't seen yet. And I mm-hmm. don't think, I mean, we were going to talk about it later as a possible score contender, but I don't really think as a major Oscar player at this point, we don't need no. to worry about it on that front. But no, uh, I don't it's, think so. it's a fun movie everyone wants to see and you've seen it. So tell me about it. Yeah. You know, as they did last year with Force Awakens, there was exactly one, well, at least if I'm, I'm aware of one press screening a couple days before the release. And they checked um, your phones. Like They took Force our Awakens. phones. They took laptops of those who were foolish enough to bring a laptop. How dare you? Um, but yeah, you know, after all that rigmarole, I wrote in my review that just before the movie started, I got this kind of stab of doubt, like, oh, God, like, why am I excited for this? This mm-hmm. could be a disaster. You know, there is precedent for Star Wars sequels not being very good. <laughs> Prequels, I, guess I should say. But I loved it. I thought it was great. And I think that 
the most striking thing about it for me was that it's really grim and mm. sad and dark. And I think that Disney trusting that and approving of that, given how much they spent on this IP and how much of the future of the corporation is between Marvel and Star Wars. I mean, those are, I mean, that's a huge chunk of their business or their business model going forward to risk that with something that's pretty grown up in a way, I think is, is oddly admirable. I hate to praise a huge I mean, corporate entity, but the fact that they went through all of these reshoots and kind of like well-publicized insecurity about what the movie was going to be and yeah. still wound up with that dark tone. I kind of mm-hmm. admired that because I think a lot of people were expecting something like much more flattened out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where the reshoots came in or what was tinkered with, but any doubt, at least for my mind, any doubt that the movie would shy away from Gareth Edwards, who directed the film, or Tony Gilroy and Chris Weitz, who wrote the film, any of their impulses towards something you know darker or more heavy, I didn't see it there. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really felt like true to some kind of vision. So that was impressive. And I think, you know, look, Disney could kind of take more of that risk with this because it's a standalone. It was never going to have a sequel because the sequel came up 40 yeah, years ago. Yeah, they don't have to introduce you know? Ray or Poe right. Dameron, who is going to be your hero who's going to be on lunchboxes Ex- for 30 years. Exactly. It just fits right in there, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was there was one little spot on the bookshelf that they filled in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really like it as a standalone movie. It's not really steeped in the kind of like mysticism. The main saga is with the Force and everything like that. Although it does include the Force, right? Yeah, the Force is in there. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they say, may the force be with us in the trailer like 10 mm-hmm. times on television. Yeah, tonight. and it's there in other aspects, but it's not about that journey. It's really much more of a heist kind of action movie that has this emotional undercurrent. And I think a lot of the emotional undercurrent comes from the fact that we know what's going to happen. So it's not like it feels like, oh, it's, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. Actually watching the movie get to where we know it's going to get to mm-hmm. is really where a lot of, for me, a lot of the dramatic tension and sort of I don't know, pathos came from. Because you get like excited to get to that point. You get excited at that point and you start to feel this sense of, and this is going to sound really corny and nerdy maybe, but I, you know, I'm a lifelong Star Wars kid. This sense of history, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. these kind of forgotten heroes of this bigger story. You know, I said to someone the other day, right after seeing it, you know, that so Felicity Jones plays this character, Jin Urso. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'd love to see some reference to her in episode eight. You know, because yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. she clearly was this huge factor in this old war, this decades old thing. So I don't know, it just would be kind of cool to kind of give that continuity. Yeah, I mean, you, there's the line in uh, the original Star Wars, many Bothans died to bring you the thing that they are stealing, the plans of the Death Star. And right. So I guess someone, right. someone's a Bothan. I don't know what a Bothan is, but someone in there is going to die as a Bothan. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's a war film. People die. But I think it's really cool also that this one line reference from a movie that came out 40 years ago then gets expanded into this mm-hmm. whole story. You know, and I've seen definitely some negative reviews of the movie that call it out for cash grabbing cynicism or this and that. And, you know, I understand those criticisms, but I have to tell you, I liked it more than The Force Awakens. I think it's up there with one of my favorite Star Wars movies. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, especially given that, you know, throwaway lines from the original franchise turn into a whole series of three prequels that nobody wanted, that there were all these things were right. like, you wanted more Star Wars? Here's this. And everyone's like, no, that's not the, that's not the more Star Wars I wanted. <laughs> right, right. But this is the more Star Wars we wanted. Yeah. Well, it made me think about the George Lucas prequels where if there had been in those movies that same sense of gloom and sort of tragic inevitability with, you know, Anakin's gradual descent into the dark side, Man, those would have been effective movies. Mm-hmm. But, Probably a downer for three. Oh, movies, I but. mean, they would have been like R-rated, like like <laughs> you know, tit- like Titus Andronicus or Shakespeare <laughs> history plays. I mean, they, yeah, they would have been dark, but the way they were actually done didn't really work. I think that Rogue One figured it out. So, are people going to go see this dark Christmas time war movie? I think they will. I don't know about kids. 
Yeah. It might not be best for like little kids. Yeah. But I guess, you know, I said to a friend after seeing it, I was like, I guess it depends on the nine year old. You know? Yeah, I was just gonna say my cousin has an eight year old. I should call her and figure yeah. out if they're gonna go see it. I mean, I'm looking, you know, Sing is the animated movie that comes mm-hmm. out on the 21st. So like, I guess the little, little kids go to Sing and right. the big little kids go to see Rogue One and someone goes yeah. to see Collateral Beauty. I will say that I certainly want to see the movie again. I don't know how much repeat viewing it will get less from the diehards, you know, because again, it has that dark tone. And I don't know how much people are going to want to live in that around Christmas, whereas, you know, Force Awakens was more up. Yeah, because I, uh, I as a, not a lifelong Star Wars kid and someone who didn't care much about the franchise about a year ago, saw The Force Awakens three times in theaters and then I bought it on iTunes yeah. so I could watch it again. I might, might have watched it twice that way. That movie has such a rewatchability and that's it a does. huge part when you have like, you know, your IP and your business and your corporation. But like you're saying, like Rogue One, I guess, is allowed to be kind of the artsy standalone. And yeah, I mean, what's exciting is if it paves the way for the Star Wars universe to really be wide open to this kind of thing. I think a mm-hmm. lot of us are looking to the Han Solo prequel as actually really promising because it's got the guys who made the Lego movie and you got Donald Glover in a supporting role like it's got this comedic potential so the idea that you can have the first two spinoffs one be a dark war movie and one be kind of a comedy that's really exciting yeah I mean I think that the challenge of the young Han Solo movie you know great filmmakers great cast as far as I know it doesn't lock into the narrative that we're used to I think because it takes yeah. place you know it's sort of separate of it's so show, is it showing the Kessel Run I think well exactly like, like so creating a whole I mean it's going to have to show the Kessel Run isn't it? I I mean, so, isn't or at least be, reference the Kessel be Run like the thing Maybe they'll finally remember that parsecs is a unit of distance, not time <laughs> or whatever. You know, having it be a completely invented story mm-hmm. versus something that graphs on to what yeah. stuff we already know. It I think won't have that a, weight of history you were talking no, about. No, it'll be a challenge. But if, again, they're doing it in a lighter tone, maybe it won't matter. Yeah. Now, I mean, you see the way Disney's handled the Marvel universe where at first they're like, we're going to bring in different filmmakers, make different kinds of films. And eventually we're like, no, we're going to make the same kind of movie every single time. Right. And it's been massively financially mm-hmm. successful, but mm-hmm. not that exciting. And maybe Star Wars can get away from that. Yeah. And I think if it has these kind of satellites orbiting the, you know, episodes seven eight nine mm-hmm. and then 10 11 12 i don't know that works for me if you want to focus on the mythology you can watch those ones if you want to just like exist in that world you can watch the satellite ones and it all kind of works i think as a plan plans for the death star that you can steal <laughs> yeah so before we go home we're going to take a big swing as we always do and take a look at the best original score category there was some news in that front as much as a best original score category can make news in that uh, several high profile scores were disqualified by the academy richard you have the list of the ones that were disqualified. yeah so what the academy determines is if there's too much pre-existing music in a film that the voters would be swayed by that music rather than the original compositions so Arrival, Silence, and Manchester have been knocked out of score consideration for the Oscars, which is you know pretty surprising because they're big movies. But in Arrival's case, there's this Max Richter piece of music. So Johan Johansson wrote the score to mm-hmm. Arrival, the original score. But there's this Max Richter piece of music that he wrote years ago that frames the film. And it's really the emotional sort of core soundtrack of the movie. If you're thinking of the music from Arrival, you're you thinking think of, of that tune of and it's not Johan Johansson. So I can see that. Manchester uses some classical pieces, maybe some choral pieces and then Silence, I don't know. That score didn't really leave an impression on me but yeah. uh, you know, I guess it wasn't all original. But yeah, I think, you know, it, it's always a shame to hear when things have been knocked out of consideration for some technicality but in Arrival's case, I actually kind of agree with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, you know, Johan Johansson has been nominated before. I mean, his work on Arrival is very good, but the signature piece of the movie is not. I mean, I think the best definition of this is when Black Swan used so much of Swan Lake to uh, right. really great effect, but it was Tchaikovsky. It wasn't Clint Mansell. Right. 
So that said, Arrival did get a Golden Globe nomination for score, but won't be eligible. So looking at the rest of the contenders, what's going to win Best Original Score? Mike? La La Land. Yeah, even though it's all about the songs? <laughs> Wait, are the songs not part of the score? How does this work? I truly don't know if you're supposed to consider the songs as part of the score. Yeah. I think that the songs are great. And the whole score is basically two or three of the songs, variations on those themes. Yeah. And I think it's really well done. And it sticks with you. And the movie's a musical. So I think a lot of people will also be, you know, sadly, just kind of like, oh, it's a musical. It must have the best score. But I actually think it does have a good score. And, you know, one of the two kind of big emotional moments at the end of the film, one of them is there are no words. It's just the score, you know, yes. kind of dream ballet. Mm-hmm. So, right. So yeah, the climax of the film is a piece of music. Exactly. I would tend to agree with you, Mike, on that. I think that some of the more sort of artsy or technical voters in the Academy, I think that the next best chance would be Moonlight. Yeah. I think that's such a striking score that feels both classical and really new and that would be a really great way to honor the many 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 amazing below the line people who worked on moonlight so i would say beyond la la land i think moonlight has the best chance that's my second choice as well i love the score for jackie but even i know that's way too arty and weird i mean i have seen people handicapping it though i mean michael levy you know people she's really respected even having just done two scores in her career yeah she's like 28 yeah But um, but, (laughs) but um yeah i think you might be right that it's a little too weird yeah and moonlight is not like a totally typical score but it's really accessible and it's really emotional and like really makes you feel a lot when i listen to the moonlight score i kind of feel what i felt watching the movie but the la la land is the same way so i mean i guess we're all in agreement that la la land will probably win but if la la land wins best score maybe then moana wins best song which uh, i think we all predicted was going to happen and now i'm feeling more doubtful about. and that would that would be the ego yeah, exactly. That's Limo right. Miranda's EGOT. And who right. doesn't want to see that happen? I could see Lion being nominated for sure. And one score that I just wanted to bring up that probably definitely will not be nominated, but is on my wish list right now is The Light Between Oceans, mm. which I thought yeah. was very cool. That's a really nice yeah, piece of music as well. I'm trying to think if I have some forgotten favorite, but I, th- I think it might just be Moonlight. What about Rogue One, Richard? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some of the John Williams compositions sort of woven in, but there is a lot of new music. And actually, some of the music takes this sort of oral landscape in a different direction that's a little bit different from what you're used to from Star Wars. So maybe, but I think that might again come up with a problem of like, how much is this original? How much is just a riff on something that already existed? <laughs> That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Yes, we will be around during the holidays talking about some end-of-year movie stuff, so don't go away. In the meantime, you can find us all at Vanity Fair, and uh, there's actually a very specific place you can find all of this. Yeah, vanityfair.com slash Hollywood slash awards. That's where all of this Little Lament poster mm-hmm. put and awards nomination reactions, That they're all kind of siloed in that sub-vertical. And we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich, Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for something you definitely shouldn't say to someone else at the Vanity Fair Oscar party goes to Mike Bogan, who would never say this. Great teeth. Great teeth.